Well, I missed you too. <laughs> Thank you. Steve launched a series last week on Emmanuel, this whole theme that Christmas isn't about people drawing close to God. Christmas is the theme of a God who draws close to people. Emmanuel, God with us, amazing. And I get to continue in that series today with the theme, Wonderful Counselor. But before I dive into the sermon, uh, I just want to, you know, say, hey, good to see you. And answer like a hundred questions that some of you have because this amazing congregation has prayed for me and for the Stumble family. And so let me just give you an update of where your prayers have, have taken us uh, in, in the last two years since I stood here last. The last time I was here, it was this odd combination of a farewell and 50th birthday party that you threw for me and very sweet of you. We, we decided that uh, we were ready to re-enter full-time employment and thought that interim work would be the wise way to do so, and God opened a door for us. And so up in Fox Island, Washington, we served in a church there, went very well as an interim pastorate, and, you know, regaining some strength and energy. I had only had the feeding tube out for a week when, when I left here and, and went up there, so it was kind of a risky re-entry, but it, it went well, wrote our first book, while we were there, and many of you have purchased that, Ravi Zacharias was gracious enough to endorse it, and so that's been very well received around the country. So that was, interim number one and book number one went so well, we decided to just do it all over again. And so um, I took a church in Southern California. There's a reason that people leave Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I was uh, interim pastor of a congregation there, and uh, book number two was, was written, was uh, put together and, and uh, published. And, uh, but after uh, some time of Joanna seeing other children's pictures on the wall and these interim living conditions that we were in, we decided to, to find a home base. Uh, if I was going to be traveling and doing all this stuff other places, let's get a home base. So we chose Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, because she has three, uh, not that I ever wanted to be a Packers fan, believe me, but, but um, we, we had, she has three sisters in that area. They don't all speak to each other, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> but she's delighted. She is delighted to be with family, dysfunctional as it is. And, and, um, uh, so, uh, and, and houses are really cheap there. We were able to buy an old fixer-upper that we've been working on this last year, and so... Uh, so that, that was good. We, we, we had an anchoring point, and we had finished two interims and two books. And this summer, I was working on books three and four when a phone call came. Hey, John, would you like to speak at a conference? Oh, yeah, I love that conference. I was doing lots of preaching around the country. And, and the guy said, by the way, would you like to be a district superintendent for a year? And I said, not really. Thanks for asking, though. And <laughs> I blew him off. I didn't even tell my wife about the conversation, but... The story is Matt Boda, that some of you know, had backslid and moved back to Canada. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there was a vacancy in the district that had to be filled. And so, uh, but I, I just, I had no interest in being a superintendent of 100 churches from Oregon to Alaska. That just wasn't on my to-do list for 2012. So, so <laughs> I didn't even tell Joanna, but I woke up in the middle of the night hearing in my spirit the, we didn't really talk about this, did we? 
word from God, and I said in my bed pillow laying there, no, was we, were we supposed to talk about this? <laughs> and the bigger question was, and do I have to get out of bed? <laughs> Hate it when I have to get out of bed. So anyway, I got up and spent the next three hours journaling and Bible, praying, you know, reflecting about this opportunity, and and don't you love it, guys, when your wife knows in like three seconds what you've taken three hours to wrestle with? <laughs> Joanna comes down the stairs at 4 o'clock in the morning and says, where you been? I said, well, I got this phone call today. I didn't tell you about it, and now I'm wondering. And she's like, well, duh, of course. That's what you were supposed to do. So, so anyway, <laughs> I'm now the district superintendent for the region for about nine months or so, interim number three. And uh, so book number three has been put on hold because this is a pretty full job. But, but I'm blessed. I'm, I'm so blessed um, to be, uh, as a direct answer to your prayers, to now get to travel, preach, lead, write, eat, <laughs> drink, uh, not live with spit rags. And, and so thank you, thank you, Jesus, and thank you, congregation, for your prayers. You know, I, book one did go really, has gone really well, but I have a author's regrets within the book and that I need to address this weekend at Salem Alliance. And it's simply this. I wrote the book still in a season of grief, and grief and gratitude are difficult companions. And in my book, I did not adequately express appreciation to Salem Alliance Church for all that you did, from Steve and his leadership to the elders and, and, and staff and congregation of prayer, of finance, of encouragement, of support, of providing me a position when I was too weak to really have one, of sustaining us in so many ways. Steve did everything humanly possible to, to stand and have my back, so to speak. And, and so... I just, um, I want to celebrate the beauty of the body of Christ better than I did in my book. I want to thank you from a deeper place than I did in my book. And I want to say how pleased I am, how thrilled I am that Salem Alliance is moving forward under Steve's leadership the way that it has been in these last couple years. So many churches uh, that would have had a crisis like this one could have gone some bad or crazy or dysfunctional directions, but this place is moving forward with the visions of the past and dreams of yet there's what to come. And so I'm still a member here, by the way. You haven't got rid of me. So, um, I, I show up about as infrequently as some of you do. But <laughs> anyway, we won't, we won't go there today. We won't go there. So uh, I do have, you know, product in the lobby, which feels really weird, but as a thank you to you for your kindness to me, I just decided when I go to Salem for that weekend, I want to try to give the books away as cheaply as I, I feel like I can. They're three for $20, which is, you'll not find that anywhere in the nation, but, but it's my way of saying thank you to you for supporting me. So they're in the lobby if you'd like to access those after the service. Two books and a video that has been put out by the Christian Missionary Alliance. I get to preach today on this Advent theme, and the title of my message is A Tale of Two Sons. 
Because in this passage, as Steve introduced to us last week, this passage that is surrounded by war and conflict, international conflict and civil war both, there's, there, there are babies that are part of the story, sons that are part of the story. And so would you grab your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 8. <clears throat> It's really good to see you. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 8. I'm going to be using the New International Version. Um, you have a different one, but they're very similar. You'll find 8th chapter of Isaiah, verse 1. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll, or some of your translations, a signboard like one of these, and write on it with an ordinary pen. There you go, Robin. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> Love you, friend. I got to have one of those every time I preach, just for you. That's right. <laughs> I don't know what she said, but I trust her. <laughs> He's mean. He does this to me all the time. <laughs> so... So God says to Isaiah, I want you to take a large, you know, scroll and I want you to write this long name on it because you're going to have a baby. You and your wife are going to have a child and I'm giving you the name for that child in advance. And that name in English would be quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. The idea of the baby, who, by the way, he wasn't just given a name. He was given, like, a whole sentence, you know? <laughs> it was as long as a sentence to pronounce, but it pronounced a sentence upon the people, a sentence of judgment, that when, hey, you got a new kid, Isaiah, cute, looks just like you. Thanks, appreciate it. What'd you name him? Mahershal Hasbaz? Really? <laughs> And the news spreads around the city that the prophets had a son, and the son's name is a prophecy in and of itself, a word of warning and of judgment. As Isaiah 8 goes on, uh, you, just to try to summarize quickly what happens in this passage, would you drop down to verse 18? Isaiah, who a couple of chapters earlier, some of you remember, has said, here am I, Lord, here am I. Now he says, verse 18, here am I, and now I got children, <laughs> and the children the Lord has given me. Here we all are. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. That We are kind of living examples with our names and our testimony that there is a God who sees the affairs of men and is involved in the affairs of men. And my son's name is, is one of those evidences. And you get down to verse 22, you get a, more of a feel of the context of the time. Verse 22, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. Some of your versions say anguish and they will be thrust into utter darkness. 
Now that's a pretty dark verse, right? Indicating a dark time. And if you would listen to a lot of American theology today, you would make a conclusion that God is only the God of the daytime. A lot of American churches are very, very good at teaching that God is the God of the healing, of the blessing, of the prosperity, of the abundance, of the day, of the good times. And I want to stand before Salem Alliance Church today and say he is. He is the God of all those beautiful things. (laughs) But I also want to say that he is more than that, that our God is not limited to daylight and happy news. That he is also the God of the hardest days, the most difficult places, the darkest of experiences. Our God knows his way very well through the dark, thank you. (laughs) In fact, interesting, does some of his best work in the dark. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, gives us a few examples of that. He says, he reminds us, that when creation happens, the powerful work of God bringing this world into existence, what is the context of creation? Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the darkness that was over the face of the deep. Darkness on top of darkness is the context in which Creation, the explosion of creation happens. That's fascinating. Uh, You get to the Son of God becoming human flesh. Where does that happen? In the darkness of Mary's womb? You get to the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross where he pays for our sins, hanging there under a shroud of darkness that covers the sky. And then you get the beautiful miracle of the resurrection. Where does the resurrection take place? In the silent darkness of a sealed tomb before sunrise. Fascinating. Fascinating. Our God does some of his best work in the dark. And I'm not just talking about in scriptural times. I'm not talking about in your heart and mind today. No, it's not easy work. It's not fun work. I'm a little hesitant this weekend to share a poem, but Steve signed off on it, so. (laughs) 2008, August, I was ignorantly and just happily running through life, literally and metaphorically, running, you know, marathons and stuff and leading this church. Every once in a while when I write, I have no idea where it's going to lead when I start, but I get a thought or phrase in my head, and then I just chase it for a while. And on this particular night here in Salem, uh, in August of 2008, the thought came to my mind, a poet's train. Now, just admit with me, that's weird. You know, it's like like choo-choo train, a poet's train. What, what, What is that about? And so I sat down, and I chased the thought, on my laptop, and here was a result. Once I boarded a poet's train, but had to write my own refrain, he would not share his pen nor rhyme and firmly swore that I find mine. We made our way a clicky-clack along the lonesome set of track. My mind was all a blicky-blink as I found it too hard to think. I hummed a tune, I said a prayer, I ran my fingers through my hair, I strolled, I paced, I got a drink, I took a nap just for a wink. When I had boarded that poet's train, I got on board to pick his brain. 
But one must write from his own heart. There is no other place to start. I pulled the cord. The train did slow. I bid farewell, for now I know if I'm to write a song or tale, it must be found on my own trail. Once I boarded a poet's train, but had to write my own refrain, and now I'm glad he would not share, for my own heart was not found there. I'm grateful for that poet's train, but I won't come this way again. Boda influence. <laughs> I'm grateful for that poet's train, but I won't come this way again. A lonely trail, a lonely trail is my best choice to hear my heart, to find my voice. I confess to you that when I wrote that in August of 2008, I had a very romanticized view of what that lonely trail would look like. It was exactly this. I would take a backpack, fill it full of a good lunch, extra chocolate, two water bottles, a Bible, a journal, and a couple pens. And I would head out on one of these fabulous Oregon trails and head miles into the forest where somewhere there would be a log that had fallen decades earlier just for this moment so I'd have a place to sit. And on that lonely trail, I would write. Sounds pleasant. I had no idea within 60, 90 days how lonely the trail was about to be. I'm glad I didn't know. <laughs> Would never wrote the poem. <laughs> Our ignorance is part of God's grace to us. Friends, 2009, lonely, difficult year for me. No fault of anybody here. Just the soul journey that God had me on. God does some of his best work in the dark. The spiritual formation that takes place. Now, now friends, I, 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 didn't, I do need to say this. Some of you are there right now, and I do need to say that in that dark place, you have to have the resolve to take every truth that you've ever learned and apply it in far deeper levels of your experience. The enemy wants to say, see, it didn't work. That wasn't true. It doesn't really, you know, and, and just blow your present learning right out of the water. Instead, instead, no, 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 no. Lift up that shield of faith and take those truths that you've come to know about who our Christ is and take those to deeper and deeper levels in your soul journey. If you don't, the darkness can get extra dark. So, I've shared some of you with some of you the story of how I was struggling in 2009, just to get a grip on what had happened. You know, I had a friend that would call me from time to time, and every time he called, he would say, "John, you were run over by a truck. You're just going along doing your thing, and wham, you were nailed." And, and he was trying to be encouraging. You know. <laughs> And, you know, at first it was all right, but after two or three of these phone calls, I started to have this as my metaphor for life, my picture for how my life was. And it's kind of tough to go through life viewing yourself as roadkill. <laughs> I had other negative images in my head as well of what had happened. And uh, I was praying through the months, you know, off and on, Lord, I need a different picture this is discouraging because your metaphors, the things that you choose to describe your life can feel accurate but be, be, but be very unhelpful. 
one day in God's kindness in the recliner chair that some people in this room purchased for me, um, I saw inside my spirit just momentarily, not with my eyes, but just had this inner glimpse of hands that were damp, that were working a pot on a wheel. Looked like a nice pot, fairly well developed. I didn't see any issues. All of a sudden, those hands went, took that clay right back down to the base. He didn't pick it up and throw it away. No, the clay was still spinning on the wheel. The hands were still damp. But he had started over on this project. God, is that my story? But I like the old pot. (laughs) I want my old life back. God, if your hands are still on me, if you're doing a do-over in my life, I'm in. I didn't know if I'd ever eat another bite of food or swallow another drink of water. I didn't know if I'd ever preach another sermon effectively again, but I had a perspective shift where I began to realize that in his silence, God was not absent. That in his silence, there was a work that he was doing that was unique and profound. And I could either be angry about it and resist it, or I could join him in what he was doing in my own life, painful though it be. And I find it fascinating (laughs) that Isaiah himself, that we're studying in this series later on in his book, says... Surely you're a God who hides himself. (laughs) Even the prophet couldn't find God some days. So don't be discouraged. God's silence does not equal his absence. He reserves the right to be confusing. (laughs) He's God. But here's why I'm going with this, this theme of a tale of two sons. Son number one is born in the midst of this darkness, this confusion, this judgment, this heaviness. And you close chapter eight, and it's like, ugh. But please remember that the chapter headings were put in after the fact. Isaiah didn't sit down and say, now chapter nine, verse one. The narrator on your Bible, on your iPhone does that, but Isaiah didn't do that. So listen, listen, chapter 9. We just finished with the words, utter darkness. Next word, beautiful word, nevertheless. A sea of darkness surrounds chapter 8 and then the previous, but nevertheless. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Do you know geographically what he's talking about there? The very same place that Jesus preached in Galilee by the Jordan River. That a light would come, a light would come in the midst of the darkness. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This is who our God is. The end of the chapter 8 is not the end of the story. The end of the chapter of your darkness is not the last chapter. 
So in the context of a God who breaks into darkness comes our scripture reading for today, which we've finally gotten to. (laughs) Would you stand? Look at chapter 9, verse 6. And rather than me reading these words, we're going to have some much better voices and the musical mastery of Handel have the verse read for us. A tale of two sons. Got the first boy with a really long name, and now Isaiah says, but another son is coming. A, A son who doesn't have a name that pronounces judgment. A son who has a name like Wonderful, Counselor. Wow. When this son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Jesus of Christmas, when when this son comes, let me give you three very specific things that this son does as points of application for it. When, When Jesus comes, he comes in contrast to the petty kingdoms of of man. All the stuff that we talked about with this guy over here with the conflict of, of kingdoms, Jesus comes in contrast to our petty kingdoms. Let me say it this way. Have you been duped with the rest of the American public that things like Wall Street and Black Friday and holidays, excuse me, Hollywood and, and, and capitals and palaces and headlines and glamour. Have you been duped into believing that those things really, like, matter? That stuff of what people build for personal credit or financial gain or political power, all that stuff just crumbles. It doesn't last. I felt that so much when I was pastoring down in Southern California next to Hollywood, you know. Kind of weird when I go to Target, pack of underwear, necessities of life. They have pictures on the underwear. Have you noticed? I didn't really notice the past until I saw that it was Matt. <laughs> The guy that I preached to yesterday in church. <laughs> hmm. I'd rather not. <laughs> well, just move on. You know? <laughs> just felt awkward, you know. 
But to be in that context and that culture and see the stress and tension of, of how fickle that momentary uh, popularity was, the actress who had been in the Disney movie stressing over two pounds because now she might not be able to, because the competition is pretty tough, believe me. Just, just the fickleness, the pettiness, the smallness, the <laughs> fact that it, it's in direct contrast to a kingdom that Jesus Christ builds, the kingdom of God in the hearts of men for now and for all eternity, a kingdom that will outlast everything that you'll ever see in a headline that seems important now will all become nothing as the kingdom of Christ is established in this world, one human heart at a time, and then as Christ comes back to just take care of it all. <laughs> so... When this son comes, the Christ, he comes in contrast to the petty kingdoms. Number two, he comes to capture the human heart. He comes to capture our affections. I get that from the first name here. You see, in some of your Bibles, it says wonderful counselor as one name. And in some of your Bibles, there's a comma right there, and it's two names, wonderful. His name will be wonderful. His name will be counselor. Why is there the discrepancy? Very simply because the original language, Hebrew, doesn't have commas or punctuation like that, so you just kind of got to make it up best you can and figure it out. And in this one, there's difference of opinion. I take the, the opinion that his, these are two names. His name is wonderful full of wonder, ah, that's his name, his, to, wonderful has entered into my life. <laughs> have you been seized, have you been captured by the Christ? I, I know, I can't live every moment of life in some awe-filled state of how incredible God is. I don't live that way every hour, every day. I'm not thinking that's humanly possible. But, but if we have never had that deep and profound sense of I've entered into something way more mysterious, way bigger, way more profound than anything that I ever experienced before in life. I have entered into the world of awe. I don't know, maybe if it happened when you held that newborn baby or, or heard some music that, or, or some, some sunrise or something, and, and for a few moments you were transcended beyond just that looking into that child's eyes or into that sunset. For a few moments you were transcended to another place. You realize that there is something eternal, something awesome, and that something is actually someone have you been captured by the Christ? I told you I get to speak in a lot of places these days. What a gift. What a blessing. One of those um, places uh, was northern Minnesota for a men's retreat in February. <laughs> I didn't realize that the opening event for the retreat was a bring-your-own-steak cookout barbecue. It's below zero Fahrenheit outside, and we're having a barbecue. Evidently, the test of manliness for this man fest <laughs> was how big your steak was. The guy sitting across from me at the table has a steak, you know, about this thick that's as big as his plate, 
And the test of manliness is how big the knife is that you brought to cut your steak with. He pulls a hunting knife out of a sheath and then reaches into his parka pocket and pulls out a raw onion about the size, a little bit smaller than a softball, plunks it down next to his, his, his plate. No, nothing else. We just got a knife, a steak, and a raw onion. That's dinner right there, man style. Next event, get to know each other a bit. The leader of the, organ, of the uh, retreat says, now we're gonna get to know each other, guys, so gather together and uh, we'll all tell each other our names and then let's tell each other the biggest thing you ever killed. <laughs> I thought he was joking. It's like, yeah, good one, good one. No, he was serious, you know. <laughs> I look around this circle, camouflage everywhere, facial hair capital of the world, and here we go, here we go. First guy, what's the biggest thing you ever killed? A beaver. Hangs his head in shame. Now, I'm not talking about the duck beaver thing. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. But he hangs his head in shame. Did he kill the beaver? No, but because it was so small. It's like he knew he wasn't going to win the Manfest contest, you know. Go around, lots of Bambi slayers in the room. A guy had picked up an elk in Idaho. Get around three guys to my right. A man of few words. A bear in the dark, with my bow. <laughs> Had the bear claw necklace hanging from his lips. Seriously, seriously. It gets around to me, what's the biggest thing you ever killed? A church. <laughs> Loser, you know. <laughs> Minus three points on the manly lift scale there, you know. Oh, brother. So now it's time to preach, okay? It's a men's retreat. I get to preach to these guys. It's 9 o'clock at night. They've worked all day. They got like four pounds of steak on their stomach, you know? Usually the sleepers hang out in the middle section where you are. I, Mike, got my eye on you, buddy. <laughs> but no, no, this sleeper right here, front row, boom, down, 10 minutes of the sermon. He's gone. He's gone. It's like, ah, oh. And no interaction, no feedback, just... I close the sermon, I call my wife, I say, honey, I'm in trouble. I'm not connected at all with these guys. I don't fit here, and, and I gotta preach two more times tomorrow. You gotta pray for me, and she does. We pray together. Come back the next morning, at least they had caffeine now instead of steak, you know, so they were a little, but I, Bible in hand, I go at it again, and at the end of my message, I take a risk. I say, now, guys, just like you to bow your head. And would anybody just like to respond to God right now to pray a prayer in response to what you've heard? I'm like, oh boy, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere. <laughs> there was a pause, and then from the back row, a guy with some dead carcass on his sweatshirt, <laughs> big beard leans his chair back, throws his head back, and says, oh, God, you're awesome. <sighs> he got it. He got it. Have you had a throw your head back, throw your heart open kind of response to God where there's times you just admit he's wonderful? 
a tale of two sons. The Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, comes in contrast to the petty kingdoms of man. He comes to capture the human heart, to capture our affections. And finally, number three, he comes to counsel our confused world or our confused lives. He comes as counselor. Now, quickly, when you, heard the, when you hear the word counselor, I think that you're thinking therapy office. Psychology, psychiatry, counseling kind of thing. Eh, that's all fine and good, but that, that has nothing to do with this conversation right now. In this time, I believe that when they used the word counselor, it was exclusively or fundamentally used for a palace or a king. A king would have a commander-in-chief of his army to keep him from getting assassinated. He would have a wine taster like Nehemiah to keep him from being poisoned. And he would have a counselor, the most trusted voice in the kingdom, the, the guy, the go-to guy for any big decision you want to make, the kind of guy that keeps you out of the ditch for making really dumb decisions. David, who's your, King David, who's your counselor? Ahithophel. Oh, good man, wise. Oh, listen to him. He'll, he'll, he will guide you well. King Nebuchadnezzar, who's your counselor? Daniel. Really? Like the one who can interpret dreams and everything. Good choice and a counselor. Church, who's your counselor? Jesus. Wow. The divine son of God is willing, desirous to walk with us in life, to speak to us through his Holy Spirit. He is our counselor. Church, are you aware that in the United States of America for the last couple decades, maybe you'll disagree with me, but my opinion is that, that every high school and college graduation speech has basically been the same speech. <laughs> Here it is, 45 seconds or less, here's the speech. Students, you have an unlimited reservoir of human potential within you. You can accomplish anything in this world if you just dig deep within yourself and tap into that potential. Go, students. Well, how's that working for you, America? <laughs> Maybe at 18 and 22, you believe the message. But at 35, you're going to wake up tired. Right, Carl? <laughs> I am so happy to be a follower of Christ. That the some total of my existence or wisdom or help or strength or energy or guidance doesn't have to just be found in my little world or the petty kingdoms of this world. I am so happy to be a follower of the Christ who is wonderful and who is my counsel. This is a life of getting... Christmas is the story of an opportunity for us to have a life of getting to know this one who came to earth and truly guide, direct. I'm so glad that I'm not left to my own resources. I'm so glad I have a counselor. You've been a very gracious crowd again today. Love you guys. Thanks for your receptivity.
books are available in the lobby. I'll be hanging out out there. But would you bow with me as we close in prayer? From the words of the Apostle Paul. Now to the King Eternal, the only wise God, be glory, majesty, dominion, both now and forever. Heaven is trembling in 